without emotions, you wouldn't be motivated to even get up or do anything. Again, we didn't talk about that part of it, but but so they're not, they're useful, they're vital for your existence. Uh, and so you should not fight them, but you, you but there are times when you should manage them and learn how to do that and always be mindful and aware of, of, of try to be aware of the emotions that you're feeling and how it's affecting your thinking. My guest today is Leonard Mladenov. Leonard is a theoretical physicist and author recognized for groundbreaking discoveries in physics. He's the author of 11 books of which five have become bestsellers. Conventional wisdom said that thinking and feeling are separate and opposing forces in our behavior. Leonard's latest book, Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking, flips the script on what we thought we knew about emotions. In his book, Leonard writes about the extraordinary advances in psychology and neuroscience that have proven emotions are as critical to our well-being as thinking. I recently sat down with Leonard, and we talked about how understanding our emotions can help us make sense of our frustration, fear, and anxiety, and lead to living a happier life. Leonard, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And I, I think what you wrote here, uh, I read this book over the weekend. Top shelf, really great book. The name of the book, folks, is Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. Leonard, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. So, Leonard, forget about, let's not even talk about the book yet. You wrote 11 books? <laughs> I did. 11 plus two children's books. So, uh, it, yeah, I started out just writing one for fun and uh, just kept going. <laughs> so you're a scientist, right? A physicist by training? Right. Theoretical physicist. How did you have, where'd you learn these, these writing skills? Because I'm reading the book and it sounds like uh, uh, you, you had a major in, in English lit. You're, the words flow really well. The stories are great. No big words. I could understand it. How'd you learn that? Well, you know, I, I think that um, you can tell a lot about the adult from the child. And in, in my case, I started writing short stories in third grade. And I used to bring them in and my um, the librarian, the school librarian would always read them and uh, talk to me about them and encourage me. And uh, I just thought it was fun starting starting then. So at the you know, same time, uh, I got my interest in math and science. So I, I think I've just had those interests. And uh, over the years, I found ways to express them, make a living off them, uh, to, to, uh, to find ways to just engage every day in what I, what I like to do. So I've been very lucky. Wow. Outstanding. A scientist who could write and I could understand. That's amazing. All right. So 11 of your books, five bestsellers. So that's a pretty good hit rate, huh? That's not bad. I'm, 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 I'm happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> every other one, or was it a string? Which, which one were the bestsellers? The, the most recent uh, well, bestseller. I'd say that okay. One of the other psychology books, Subliminal, uh, about your unconscious mind and how that affects your life and your uh, experiences in ways that you're not aware of. And uh, the Drunkard's Walk, uh, which was about randomness in, in life, and also kind of a similar theme how a lot of things in your life are due to randomness or luck or bad luck, uh, and you don't realize it. And I'm not talking about just obvious things about whether you win the lottery, but even subtle things. So uh, that was a real big seller. Uh, two books with Stephen Hawking, uh, the bestsellers, of course. <laughs> One was A Briefer History of Time. Uh, he first contacted me about that book. He was looking for someone to 
rework a brief history of time to make it more understandable. And he had read two of my other books. Um, and uh, and so we wrote that, we rewrote that. And then after that, we had so much fun, we decided to write an original book together, which was actually much, much harder and uh, took much longer. And that was called The Grand Design about the origin of the universe and whether it could have come from, from nothing and what that means about creation and God and those questions. Wow, nice. Uh, and, uh, and I wrote a book with Deepak Chopra on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, uh, about uh, kind of a metaphysics book. <laughs> we were debating each other because we had, we were friends, but we have widely different beliefs in, in, in uh, what's going on in the universe. And uh, so that was another one. Wow, outstanding, man. Okay, I'll tell you what interests me about this book. The name of the book is Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. And you really flip totally the script, which is, Conventional wisdom always said that thinking and feeling are two separate and opposing forces. And especially being, uh, being in the finance business and managing money for a zillion years, you always are trying to suppress your emotional side and start to start, try to stay rational and logical and let the facts and analysis make the decision for you instead of your gut or instead of uh, using emotions such as fear or greed. So when I read this book, you, 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 you found a new way based on a lot of science, and I'm going to go through a lot of the examples because some of them are really amazing. Uh, you, you came at it from a different angle. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the, one of the, well, you've covered several points that you just covered and what you said are, uh, exactly the opposite of what I say you should do. Uh, for example, suppression of emotion is probably the worst thing you can do when you have an emotion. Uh, if you have an unwanted emotion, uh, there are other ways to get around it than to try to suppress it, which doesn't work and just drives you crazy. So, and in fact, there have been, in the book, I quoted a study in particular of, of traders in, in, the, in the finance world. And, and uh, the studies show that those who were more in touch with their emotions and who didn't try to suppress their emotions but used other ways of either managing them or or learning from them or, or using them in their decision making did much better and, and they were the, the, the more successful senior level people the the older uh, version theory of emotion really comes from charles darwin and darwin uh, it, i mean it was there before him this idea between the separation of the rational and the emotional mind, but he really created the first theory, scientific theory of emotion. And that's what people believed more or less until around the last 10 years. And that's based on the idea that there are certain basic emotions and that those basic emotions are, each, each of those basic emotions, well, that those basic emotions are all separate from each other. So that's one, that they have distinct triggers. So. This will always trigger that. You know, X will trigger, let's say, fear, and Y will trigger uh, sadness. Or, uh, and then those are set. That they're universal amongst uh, cultures. And um, in the years after Darwin, it was also added that they have certain specific parts of the brain that they that that, that controls each one. All four of those we found out are, are wrong. And the the, uh, the concept of emotion is a really much more complex, both in the brain and in our experience than, than people used to think. And this division between uh, emotional thinking and logical, rational analysis is not only wrong, uh, 
it, it's counterproductive. If, if we try to do that, it's counterproductive. And in reality, the way your brain works is they're, they're, they're really intertwined. They're part of the same information processing. You can't really separate them. So it's a different way to process information. It's not, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, my whole business career, anytime I made any investment, I realized that emotions will kill me in the sense of if the market's plunging and I see a buy opportunity, instead of panicking, I try to keep those emotions in check and execute the, the order to buy, which is extremely hard, which is extremely hard to go against uh, your, you, you know, fear and greed. You, it's, it's amygdala hijack. All of a sudden you just freak out. Okay, so you try to suppress that. But thinking what you're saying now, I'm thinking more to it. I remember George Soros before uh, when he would make a major trade and he'd start getting a backache. It was, he said, my emotional side is coming in. He starts to listen to that. I remember also just thinking about this now is uh, Alice Schroeder in the book, um, The Snowflake, about uh, Warren Buffett's biography. He, she wrote Warren Buffett's biography. And when he put on a, a trade um, and his back started to hurt, uh, he started to get aches and pains. He knew something was up. So I guess, you know, this whole thing of being the machine is not really so much being the machine. It's that they, these great investors, traders, uh, found a way to channel that emotional side where it supplemented and didn't supplement it. It, it, it enhanced their rational thinking. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it is. And again, there was so much in what you said, uh, Charles, to unpack, but, um, let me go back to one of the words you used earlier, which is panic, okay? Panic is not a good thing. <laughs> so there are situations in which your emotions get uh, out of control or, or are, become counterproductive. So just like with, with your vision, vision isn't always right on. Sometimes you have optical illusions. Sometimes you have malfunctioning of vision. And, and, and one reason that emotions got a bad reputation is that some of the malfunctions uh, are quite dramatic and people talk about them and they feel as if emotion is, is bad for you. But other than those uh, more or less isolated instances or people with certain disorders where the emotions are, are typically out of control, other than that, the emotions uh, are helping you in all the decisions that you make. And in fact, I talk in the book about how you wouldn't even get off your chair or open your mouth to, to talk or to eat without emotions feeding into that. So the Soros example is great because it shows, it kind of embodies uh, how this works, that, that you know, your unconscious mind has a great deal of data, uh, complex data that it's always analyzing that you're not even aware of on your conscious level. And your emotions take that into account. And your emotions are very tightly connected to your body. I have a, a whole chapter on the mind-body connection. In his case, obviously, his mind had, had created some doubts based on this complex data, based on his past experience that he wasn't even aware of. And it was causing these bodily changes and he was uh, smart enough to pay attention to them. But in, in, in general, not just when you're getting a backache, but when, when, when you are making decisions, even if, once you get your panic under control, the emotion, the, the, you know, a good amount of fear about what you're gonna do can, be, can help you because fear, fear can make you more careful, right? So, so without any fear, you might, you might think that, that you might make bad decisions because you'll, under, you'll undervalue risk. Now, you can always give a computer uh, all this information to make, let it make decisions or, and, and compare it to people. But for the way people make decisions, the, the emotional component is really inextricable. 
and it's really uh, it's really useful as, as a study that I quoted earlier showed that the 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 the, the, the stock traders who were not in control of their emotions didn't do well, but those who were in control and in touch with their emotions and didn't try to suppress them, they did the best. So that shows that the best decision-making does come with a certain amount of emotion, but you have to be mature enough and in charge enough to manage your emotions. Right, right, right. Okay, excellent. That brings me to, to a point in the book that I want to talk about because you talk about, and I want you to really elaborate on it because I thought it was so striking, uh, your father in World War II choosing not to go on a truck that uh, didn't end well for those people who did, and no logical reason why he didn't go on. Yeah, I'm going to let you tell that story in just one second. But I do recall uh, someone I knew years ago. Uh, he fought in the uh, 67 war in Israel, and he was climbing up the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights was totally exposed to Syrian bombardment, they were shooting. There was no cover. These guys were crawling up. And every people were being picked off left and right. And he said, and he showed me his pair of pants, which was amazing. He was lying down, crawling up on his, on his belly. And then for some reason, he doesn't know why to this day, he stood up. A moment later, a bullet whizzed through his pants, which would have been his head, where his head was at, and killed the guy next to him who was crawling up. And he ran up and he was saved and he was lived to tell the story. And he goes, I don't know what made me do that. Now, reading about your father choosing not to go on the truck and the mind-body connection, it's becoming more in focus. You want to just elaborate that? Because I found it absolutely uh, amazing. Well, one of the components of the, uh, that, that your brain uses to create the emotions that, that you end up feeling is called core affect. And that's a report, kind of a report on the state of your body. It has two aspects, the uh, valence and arousal. Valence meaning positive or negative, and arousal is the strength or the signal. And what your body does uh, in creating the core affect is it, it, it's reading the, the, the physical state of, of, of your body, of all of the areas of your body, and of your surroundings, and whether there's any threats in the environment. Is it too cold out there? Are you starting to shiver too warm? Or are you in a situation where, that, where you'll survive? And that feeds into, into your emotion, and it really works on a very unconscious level. And it, and it has the effect of not only creating emotions, but of having unconscious effects on your behavior, giving you hunches, making you altering the decisions that you make. In this case, uh, and just like in a way with George Soros, with, with his backache, there's things going on in your head that you're not aware of, but you should pay attention to them. And my father was uh, in the, in the un anti-Nazi underground as a, he was a Jewish uh, uh, underground leader in his city, Częstochowa in Poland in World War II. And they would go at night and do various uh, actions against the Nazis. Some, sometimes it was uh, trying to smuggle kids out of the ghetto that they were um, pris imprisoned in. Sometimes it was sabotage and so forth. And on this one occasion, they, they had paid off a uh, Polish uh, truck driver to take them somewhere to do something. And uh, there was a fence around the ghetto, and they had the part where they had cut, and they were crawling under the fence uh, to get to the truck. And uh, my father was the last one, and, went, and so he had no one to hold the fence open. And when he started to go through, he got stuck. And so these other guys were on the back of the truck, and it's, it's ready to go, and they don't want to wait around because that's a conspicuous spot to be, and it's just not good to stand around their motor running. And, and so my, my father didn't know what to do. Should he, uh, you know, he, 
finish wriggling out and go running after them and hope that they you know make them wait for him or is it better to just say forget it i can't make it and let them go without him so and what's better for them really what's better for him he's and he's done he said that he had done a lot of those missions and these things come up and he really didn't feel consciously feel fear and he decided uh, consciously he weighed things uh, this is kind of in the benjamin franklin tradition i think where he said draw a column for a and a column for b this is a, a, a good aside. He said, put the pros on for A here and the pros for B here or the pros here and the cons there, and then look at it and make a rational decision. Well, nobody does that, nor is it the right thing. When I've tried to do that, I often do that, and I pick. I say, oh, there's 25 reasons I should do B, but I want A, right? right. All, your, all, your and, biases, all your biases come into play. It overrides all of them anyway, right? Yeah. All, well, it's all your, it's your unconscious, what your unconscious knows, and it's your emotions are, are making you are pushing you to, to value things maybe in a way that's different from pure logic. And so my father had decided to, to go ahead and join them. And then he just couldn't make himself do it. And, and they went away without him. And about 10 seconds later, uh, the Gestapo come, come along beside the truck. They stopped the truck and they just machine gun everybody to death. So I, had my father not made that decision, I would, he wouldn't have survived. I wouldn't be here. The book wouldn't have been written. But, um, you know, that's something that really came as I talked with him about it uh, back then. He's been dead for many years. And, you know, he insisted that he wasn't he wasn't afraid. He just he just couldn't make his body do it. Something in him said, no, don't do this. And um, I brought that up because that's a good illustration of how your body sometimes uh, you, or, you know, things that you're that you don't know consciously. Right. It's so many times when you're walking across the street or something and something makes you stop. I know this happened to me several times. Uh, I just stopped for some reason, and right a, f a couple of seconds later, a car would have passed uh, that would have maybe hit me. Or yeah, so maybe you, your your senses picked up the car, but they were somewhat subliminal. It, they were it wasn't a loud enough sound for you to reach your consciousness because you know your whole brain, the way your perception works, your seeing and your hearing, uh, your touch, everything is you get a certain amount of data in to, to your brain, but your conscious brain can only handle about ten bits of data per second. And these noises, sounds, and images are much, much more data rich than that. So what happens is your brain takes what it can and it forms a, 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 a picture that you perceive that's really not, not literally based on what's actually coming in. It, it has to fill in a lot of gaps. Like if you see a, uh, an image of what your retina actually picks up, it's very fuzzy. It's not the clear image that you have. And your brain takes that fuzzy data and processes it to make it something that's a clear perception. And sometimes that stuff that comes in is, is so vague or soft or faint or quick, like they, they flash words at people in experiments that are uh, three thousandths of a second and you don't realize you saw it, but, but your unconscious did pick it up. And those things can affect your mental processing in a way that you don't know it. So when you have these feelings like, like you just described, that's what's happening. And your emotions guide how you interpret that on a level that you're not even aware of. I was always in Stan Lee's uh, Spider-Man. That was, uh, you know, Spidey senses. You know, when he felt like a tingling, if something's going to go, my spider senses yeah, are tingling. And right. Well, you know, I should say, because there's a certain context that I have and you have because you read my book, but I should maybe say to, toward the beginning of this, of our talk, is that what uh, to define emotion. And this is something that is problematic in the literature. A lot of different researchers use different definitions for emotion. 
And the one that that I think is the best and and is like is is embraced by a lot of researchers is the fun the idea that an emotion is a functional state that your brain is an information processing system like a computer but might be very different from a computer but it like a computer it takes data in and has as an output has an output in which case decisions feelings thoughts and the way that you process data the the the, the soft car or the, the the very faint sound of a car far away let's say or um something that you see some other sensory data in your environment or if you're making a decision about what stock to buy or sell information about it all this is data and the, the way your brain processes the data is changed depending on the emotion you have so the emotion is a functional state of your mind that alters the way you process information okay let me speak then let me let me search for a second so yeah, I got it. It's, you're right. We we I jumped right into this because I was all excited. But you're right. We should have this <laughs> the first few minutes of it. So when I'm in a happy mood, when I'm in a, when I'm in a, a, a cheerful mood, and you bring up the story about Shackleton, for example, put that aside just for a second. When I am in a euphoric mood, the way my brain is now processing all information. I'll give you. Let me stop a second. When I make a great investment and it comes to fruition, and I and I would call ring the register, I sell out of it after X amount of years and I make a multiple of my turns. It's a sunny day, even though it could be pitch black in the middle of a thunderstorm. Everything around me looks beautiful. You're saying, or science is basically saying, that that information that is being processed now is colored by my emotions. Is that more or less right? Yeah, you're, you're, so you're, well, not just that, but whatever's happening to you. So that happens to trigger the happiness. Okay. Now you're in a happy state. Now you're in a happy state and you, you read my book. Okay. You're going to like the book better than if you were in a sad state when you read the book, because when you take in that information, your brain is going to process it in a different way than it would if you were in a sad or an angry state. When, when you, when you go outside and, and it's cloudy, if you're in a happy state, you might go, what beautiful clouds. You might you think, what a nice day. I, it, it's, it's nice to have some interest in the sky, not just pure blue all the time, right? You, you'll have these kinds of uh, these thoughts and, and, and decisions that you make will all be colored by, by that happiness. If you are going to get a, a, another offer of something, the way you evaluate whether or not to take the offer will be colored by the fact that you're in a, in a happy mood. If, if, you're, you know, if you're hungry, you start to think about food. You might see so you might walk by a store and if you're not hungry, uh, if it's a, say it's a bakery, you won't even notice. You won't remember later that you walk by these cakes in the window. If you're hungry when you walk by that, that has that your, your brain processes it differently. But if now you're walking by and you're afraid that the guy behind you is going to mug you, the no, hunger thinking, right. goes away and now you're in a state of fear and you don't notice, you don't even care if someone offered you the cake for free, you just keep walking because you want to get out of there. If there, was so, a, if there was a $100 bill on the floor, you wouldn't care, you'd run away because- Yeah, and this is a very deep thing. It's not just that, that you're making a conscious decision to run away from the $100 bill. You probably won't even notice it because your mind is focused on something else. So what happens, the, the, the way that emotions interact with your rational thought is data comes in, whether it's information about things in the world, about financial decisions about your friends or whether it's sensory information, your brain has to make sense of that and come up with decisions and behaviors and feelings, thoughts, opinions, or whatever. And that kind of calculation 
depends on what state of emotion you're in. And that makes sense because think about not us in civilization, but think about humans wandering the savannah. If you're wandering, if you're, if you're going out and you're hungry and you're looking at different bushes to see what could I eat, that's one thing and that has to help that you need that to survive. But then if some threatening predator, if you hear a threatening predator in the background, even a very faint noise of something that could be threatening, you have to you better take the action, that better take precedent. So the motion of fear comes into play. And now you're, you're, you're suddenly, you're more aware of, of, of the sounds that are around you, you're less attention on what's to eat, and it changes your, your behavior. I, one other thing I, I should say in the definition is that this is in contrast to how most animals behave, the so-called lower or simpler animals, insects, uh, reptiles, they behave on, on what's called, they, their brains produce what's called fixed action patterns. So they, there are stimulus response kinds of behavior. So if this happens, they do that. If this happens, they do that. that they're, they're programmed the way you might imagine and the way people used to imagine programming a computer a bunch of if-then statements that interact with each other to produce some kind of output or behavior, okay? So, so that is a much inferior and more rigid way of behaving in the world than we humans or other primates have. Okay, hang, hang on a second. Hang on. I want you to put a little color on this, literally. You bring up in the book of, the, of this, uh, this example of this program type or reflexive type of action with a certain fish that has a red underbelly or when it sees a red underbelly, talk to that. It's a stickleback. So, so when it- What's it called? Say it again. It's a stickleback fish. Stickleback. Okay. Okay. When, when the males uh, see uh, another one coming by, they're territorial, they attack. Uh, so this is a, this is a, an automatic behavior. Uh, but, how do we know it's automatic? Well, for example, we can put a block of wood in the, in the tank with a red underbelly and it'll attack the block of wood. It doesn't really care what it is. It sees the red swimming by and it attacks it. Another example I give is a mother goose. You see the goose sitting on the nest. An egg falls out. She takes her long neck and pulls the egg back into the nest. What a wonderful motherly maternal thing to do. She must love her kids. Well, if I put a, uh, a baseball next to the nest or a beer can or even a volleyball, she'll do the same thing. She doesn't even recognize whether it's, a, it's an egg or whatever it is. She's programmed, if there's something by the nest, bring it in. Now, that malfunctions, so we have famous, just like emotions can malfunction and optical illusions can happen. There are cases where it's silly, stupid behavior. She, why is she bringing the football into her nest? But most cases, there's no footballs around her and she's doing the right thing. She's bringing the egg back into the nest. That's reflexive behavior. So, and that works for a lot of animals, but for the human beings, we have a different, more nuanced, more sophisticated kind of behavior. Ours goes, through, we have that behavior too, by the way, son, so that there's some aspect of that in our behavior. That's our but fight That's our fight or flight type of emotion, right? That's when we, we get reflexive based on stimuli that overwhelms us and yeah, right. It's we hear a rustle a, in the trees. Uh, I'm jumping yeah, out of it. Doesn't have to be that dramatic. It's also autopilot. When you drive, if you drive to work, uh, the same route every day, you, pretty soon you don't even realize where you turn. And and right. sometimes I start going the route that's my work route, but I'm going somewhere else, and I find myself turning. Oh my God, I'm not supposed to. Shouldn't have turned back there. I'm going to work. You know, so so that's reflexive behavior. But most of our behavior is more nuanced than that, and it's emotion based. Emotion based behavior 
is a little bit, there's one more step. So it's not like stimulus happens, like egg falls out of the nest and then response happens, I bring it back. With emotions, there's one extra step. Egg falls out of nest. I feel regret, fear, love for the egg or whatever it is. And then I do a calculation. Is it worth, in this case, getting it? And then I, and then I do it. That extra step allows a lot more flexibility. It allows you to be more nuanced. So, so she doesn't, she might always pull the egg back in. If there is, a, I don't know, whatever eats geese, you know, a hawk hovering overhead ready to pounce on her, that could be dangerous. Maybe the better move is to wait 10 minutes and then get the egg back. She can't do that because she's doing it reflexively. A human could do that because a human, the egg goes out, you get fear for the egg, you feel an emotion, then you process the information, in which, in which case you can take into account other factors, such as the hawk that's going to get you, and you stay in hiding, you see the hawk is gone, then you get the egg. It's a superior way of behaving. Okay, got it, got it. I totally got it, I understand it. Here's my problem. How do you discern when to use emotion and when to use the rational? Now, before you answer that question, you give an excellent uh, example of both ways where emotion should have been used instead of rational, uh, uh, your reflexive, and the other way. Uh, KAL uh, Airlines and the almost start of World War III. In both situations, it could have been hard, things could have been definitely different. And in one case, it could have been the end of the world. But a person used and weighed and thought and used emotions in that. So bring us to that letter because that's my, I, I love everything you're saying and I totally agree. My problem is how does one discern when? Well, that's a perfect example because it, it's exactly what I was talking about. So in the military, people are trained to follow orders to in a sense be automata, uh, not, not to really, they're supposed to be cogs in the machine and they're supposed to follow an al algorithms or whatever. That, that was like, by the way, I'm just interrupting working for my father back for a year and a half, which was terrible for me. His thing was, I said, Dad, I did this. He goes, why'd you do that? Because I thought, he goes, no one's paying you to think. <laughs> that was his, he would have liked that. You're not paid to think. Well, that's the way it is in the military and right. in some corporations. And if my book, Elastic, is all about, you know, how we think and creativity and why that's bad. But that's another story. But in the military, that's what you're supposed to do. So in the KAL example, it was uh, a uh, commercial airline. Uh and it, it wandered by, by accident into, uh, into a Russian airspace. And the, um, the, the Russian pilots uh, had orders to shoot down whatever, you know, wanders to the airspace. And there's, no, there's, there's really no leeway given to you. you. You're supposed to just shoot down the, the, uh, the, the intruder. And so they did. And they didn't think about they didn't try to analyze, look at the nuances of the situation. They just did they follow their orders? And, and I forget, hundreds of people died in that uh, in that incident. And this was in the '80s when there was a lot of tension between the U.S. and, and Russia. The, All the right, so, other, so, so, so the goose example. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is the goose example here? Is the the egg fell out of the nest? Bring it back in. A plane is going into our territory. The response is shoot it down after trying to take evasive action. Well, they interpreted everything as evasive action. Uh, they did shoot a warning thing, but then the plane was climbing. It just so happened to, uh, just terrible timing on everything. 
The plane was now climbing simply because they spoke to air traffic control and they wanted a smoother uh, with less turbulence. So they were climbing, which was reinterpreted as evasive action. Boom, the plane, the plane shot down. Right. So, so they fired an, a warning, um, a missile or something, but you know, the cockpit of a commercial airplane, you don't, you only see a little bit in front of you. They didn't, they didn't see that. It would have to go like right in front of their nose to see it. And by chance they were, they had gotten the uh, orders to climb to avoid the turbulence and they thought it was evasive action. But, uh, you know, I think it was still pretty obvious that it was a, a it was a commercial plane and they could have taken other actions such as try to, fly next to them and force them down. Do you remember when that actually happened? I remember the, in the UN, I think it was James Baker, James Baker at the time, brilliantly put the uh, television monitor of this transaction going between uh, the Russian pilot and his air traffic right above where the Russian ambassador sat, the Soviet ambassador of the Soviet Union, right above him. It was, it was brilliant. And you hear him give the order, not him, but the orders to go and shoot down the plane. It was it was just fascinating. That was a real that was a that was a real big deal in the in the cold. People don't remember that, but I think it was eighty three. Am I right? On somewhere's around there, eighty two. Yeah, was, around there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was during the Cold War, and tensions were high all over. That was a bad, bad situation. And I think yeah, Nixon. Yeah. I, there there was, there, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I mean, there would have been ways taking the, the situation to to probe a little further. And, and, and not have any threat come to you from that. And they probably would have been able to have a peaceful resolution, but they didn't do that. Okay, so they the followed orders. Case. They did everything that was supposed to be. So their rational brain took over. The, guy, the basic if A, B, C, it was checklist. All the conditions are met, fire on the aircraft. Right, Good. so they weren't, the, they weren't deciding anything. They were doing the, the algorithm. They were running the algorithm they were ordered to run. So uh, they were just human parts of a machine. And... The other case was uh, another bizarre kind of accident, which was the, some sunlight hit some something at <laughs> I forget where. And North, North uh, Dakota it was North Dakota. The sunlight hit the tops of the clouds over where the uh, uh, where we keep our ballistic missiles, and it appeared on Soviet radar as if we launched because the sun reflected off the clouds as yeah. if we just launched a massive nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Right, and so this guy's sitting in the in the in their bunker, and, and he's in, in charge, the duty officer in charge of reacting to this, and he had similar orders to the pilots. Uh, he he was told that if this happens, then there's different checks and balances that that were the computers were running on this signal to to make sure it's real. And his job was to push the button to launch a massive nuclear strike against the United States, and then to call the military brass and tell them what happened. And Again, so this is a rigid, uh, if he followed the rigid rules, he would have done that. And I think he said in interviews later that he thought most people would have done that. And he knew that, 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 that if he didn't do that, and this was a real strike, that, that he was, uh, I don't know, in, in some sense, letting his country down. I mean, it wouldn't have saved them from the missiles that hit anyway, but he would have been a big traitor allowing the U.S. to destroy his country, I suppose, without retaliation. And... Because he, he did follow his emotions, he, he did what he first thing he did was he took made the decision to take the decision on himself and not be a cog in the machine. So now there's a human element entered into this algorithm and the human element having the, the, the emotion of fear uh, of valuing human life and being afraid of, of taking so many lives wrongly made a different decision to wait 
And he reported instead that there was a malfunction. And if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here either because that would have been a nuclear war that destroyed the world. And, you know, there, uh, there, there was something similar that they just released a few years ago uh, from the Soviet archives that happened in Cuba. The, uh, one of the Soviet officers in 1960, I think it was 62, during the, during the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, was ordered to send the missiles. And he said no, and he made that decision not to. Say, I'm not going to follow this order because it's a faulty order, whatever. So he used his, as my father would say, uh, you're not paid to think. You should have shot. You know, I, I see the two extremes. How does one discern the difference? Well, the thing is, you, you okay, this, th th these examples have a peculiarity where you're ordered not to make a decision. You're ordered just to follow orders, right? And I, I would argue that that's a, a dangerous situation to put anyone in because a human can make a better decision than a computer precisely because a human has emotion and the human will then for be more nuanced and more able to uh, act properly when there is a, a situation that was not really envisioned by the algorithm. Now, in, in your own life, you don't really, okay, we, we have, and I, I have a section of chapter in the book about how to manage your emotions, but let, we should understand that, that emotions are automatic. So the emotions that you don't decide to feel an emotion, you, you, you feel the emotion based on whatever is happening or your mind, we can talk about this if you want to, your mind creates that emotional experience. It's not necessarily, again, it's not the Darwinian idea that if I punch you, you're going to get angry necessarily. Um, or, or if you prick your finger, that you're even going to feel the pain. All of that is a, is a construction of your mind, but there is something going on in your emotional life underground, under in your subconscious, no matter how it comes out as to this emotion or that emotion. And that happens in an auto automatically. And it happens because it's, it's, it's supposed to happen to protect you and to keep you alive. It's supposed to, just like with the goose, there's a situation that happens. It's supposed to encapsulate the situation and your brain takes that feeling into account with all the other data and makes its decision. Okay. So, by the way, there's a, there was a movie, 1995, called Crimson Tide with uh, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington, which was yeah. about that Cuban missile situation where Gene Hackman, trigger-happy guy, wanted to launch nuclear strike against uh, from a submarine because they got only a snippet of an order before their antenna went down. And Denzel Washington said, no, we need to check it out. He goes, we've been trained to do this. Here is the protocol. And, they, and if they would have done it, that would have been, that would have been the end of the world. So I, I think uh, that's it. So, so, you know, when I make a, an investment decision, when I do all my analysis about buying a company, buying a stock, I go through my checklist because I know that we're going to take shortcuts. I know we're human and we're going to start to use our biases, so I try to cut away from that. If at the last moment I don't want to do it for whatever reason, even though I, I see that that's the reason, you're basically saying that my emotions are kicking in there somehow and trying to, they're, they're taking that information, they're saying, all right, you could rationalize any way you want, but not a good play. Yeah, that, that is... Uh, <laughs> Those kinds of hunches are, are, are based on your feelings, uh, on your inner feelings. And you already made the rational decision, and now something's telling you not to do it, right? That's because there's some other processing going on that you're not aware of. I mean, it's not always right, but I think most people would, would find, if they look back, that, that their, their hunches are, are right more often than not. 
So it's really putting yourself in a, you know, because I like to quantify everything, which I don't think this is quantifiable, but where uh, when you have a strong hunch or a gut about something, usually go with that because based on what you were saying before, Leonard, is your brain is processing all of this information. Your rational brain is bringing in only a fraction. Was it 10 bits per second or something? And your emotions are just basically Spider-Man. They're giving you spider sense and telling you, this is not good. I'm still yeah. struggling with how do I listen to that? How do I know when it's when it's right and I should be overriding my process and when I should be standing down? Well, you, you can't know in advance. So, you know, there's no decision-making machine that's 100% correct. So you, you, you take your chances either way. But I think you're generally better off listening to your emotions, uh, listening to your hunches, at least taking them seriously. And, you know, rather than, than using pure, pure reason, they've done studies about, like, here's, a, here's an example. They did a study where uh, they, they showed, they divided their subjects into two groups, and they showed both groups a lot of data about some a car. And uh, I don't know, the different aspects of the car. And I'm not that into cars, so I wouldn't exactly know how to appreciate the data they're showing them, but they were supposed to decide what, which car, there were two different cars actually, which car is a better buy. And I guess they, they arranged it so that there was a, 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 a correct answer. It's not just, I like this one better. So, but it was complicated data that they were supposed to peruse through. And one group, they showed them all the data, and then they said, take 10 minutes to deliberate, do your Ben Franklin list, A versus B or whatever, and come up with an answer. And the other group, they had them do anagrams or something for 10 minutes. So they couldn't think about it, but their unconscious mind was still working on it. And in the end, they all made their choices. And the ones who weren't thinking about it did better than the ones who were, at least when the data was, was complex. And then they did another trial where it was pretty simple. And, and then the other group did better. So, you know, it's, it's one complex data. I'm not sure actually if they did better or they did the same, but the point of the study was that when the, when the data is complex enough, uh, you, your unconscious mind is doing a better job than your than your conscious mind. And now, if the people in the in the th think about it situation didn't just think about it, but kind of, you know, like chilled, meditated, and let let it percolate without thinking about it, they may have come to the same conclusion. So they would have had the hunch or whatever that 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 explained that that told them what the right answer was but but if you're just putting the a versus b and you're not paying attention to your feelings then you're going to often get the wrong answer um, yeah, there's another yeah. kind of effect yeah. i don't know if you've ever had this in you know like let's say in a trivial situation do i want the steak or the fish i can't decide okay and i'm thinking well, i want the steak because of blah 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 you know oh i want the fish because it's healthier because i i had steak uh, I had fish. I had steak yesterday, so I better get the fish. I have. I have all these reasons, and then you're, and the waiter comes, and you're about to order, and you, you switch. Have to say fish. The word right. steak comes out because all those reasons don't matter. You really want the steak, just like my dad with the fence. You know, just go with it because that's what you really want, and your brain knows that, but consciously, your 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 logic doesn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Although, or people always say to the waiter, "What do you suggest?" Yeah. And it's always like the steak. Well, yeah, that's what I'm going to get then, you know, but yeah. that's what you originally want. Me, I'm easy. I go to a restaurant, I order the same thing all the time. That's what I don't have to think. My wife, on the other hand, and I know she's going to listen to this podcast, but I say this in all a complimentary. It's beautiful, 
how she spends so much time with the waiter explaining everything. <laughs> and then basically says, what do you think? What's better? Me, I just, whatever I had there 40 times before, I stay the same. Because I, I know uh, there's too many biases. I You know, I, I just, I, I realize that I, we're so influenced by so many things. And I want to talk about one of the uh, one of the studies here, which was absolutely amazing. And I learned something else from your book. A lot of these sociologists and, and behavioral scientists are crazy people to come up with insane experiments about. There's one that they did surgery and took out things as a placebo thing, which they didn't do anything, but they did surgery. A lot of these things they did in 1950s and 60s, they'd be shot today. They'd go yeah. to jail. It's, it's, it's such immoral things. But anyway, I'm just thinking the more you keep talking, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to see how I use this, and I do. I do use a lot of what you mentioned. Anytime before I make a major trade or recommend in my newsletter, uh, after we spend two to three weeks doing extensive deep dive on it, doing all the research, I always tell my senior analyst, I go, all right, ready to, he goes, ready to pull the trigger? I said, no, I got to sleep on it. And I stop thinking about it. I stop thinking about it. I've spent three weeks thinking about it, and you get all the sunk costs in. I already spent this much time. How could I say no? And there were several situations where I slept on it, and I woke up next to him, just not feeling this. There was something there. There was something that by misdirecting my thoughts, by not being so, uh, um, um, you know, enmeshed in it, and, and cut, there's something that just said, wait a second, take a step back. And I also noticed when I sell, uh, when I want to get, when I want to sell a position, I take a walk around the block at, at right couple of minutes to four o'clock when the market closes, and then I do it the next morning. Because I don't want to have that, Time's running out. You got to make a decision in 15 minutes. No, I want to do it on my terms. So I definitely uh, uh, see how I incorporate or how it took me 40 years to figure it out, how I use my emotions not to screw up the process, but to, to, uh, to, to enhance it. Well, I couldn't have said it better. I, if, I, if you had told me that uh, a year ago, I would have put it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, I want I want to get to something which just I remember reading so many things because uh, of because uh, as an investor you're always trying to stick with the facts. You don't want to let your um, uh, I have I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. My senior analyst, his family's in the in the fast food restaurant business, and he happens to have a bias towards fast food franchise companies. And he once prepared a company for me and said, Charles, I like this. I said, but Joe, let's look at the whole world. Is this a business that we want to own in COVID? But his bias took him to a place where he felt most comfortable, the fast food. And I said, just cut that. Don't, don't, don't have that bias. Because I'm always very cognizant of all of these type of biases, how they, these hidden persuaders, they make us do stuff we never thought we'd do. And there's one thing that I saw so many studies about, but I love the study that you brought up, was on the parole board. How you have a better chance, if you're in prison, to be paroled based on the time of day the parole board meets. Add some color to that for me, Leonard. So this has to do with core affect. Again, that, that aspect of your, of your body where your brain is monitoring the, your physical state. And that feeds into your emotions, your decisions. So these parole boards, they have a huge responsibility. They don't want to keep somebody who has been reformed or who would be okay in society in prison any longer than they have to. They'd be, they'd, they, they like to let those people go back and, and lead a fruitful life. 
On the other hand, if, if they let the wrong person go back, he could kill somebody or rob somebody and, 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 and the responsibility is on the parole board. So it's, it's a stressful job and it's tedious because they, there's a lot of uh, demand, a lot of prisoners coming through and they have to work these long hours day after day doing this. And what the study did was that they would normally work from nine till noon, I think it was, and then from one uh, until four or five. And they would get a certain amount of time, 20 minutes maybe per, per person, and it would go bam, 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 bam. And then they'd take a lunch break and then they'd do it again. <laughs> and what these researchers did was they studied the percentage of uh, paroles granted at any given time. And it was just amazing. I have the graph in the book, but you know, when they're, when they're, when these, parole uh, officers are fresh, it's, uh, it's up here somewhere. So I don't remember what, it, what, what percentage it was, but it's pretty high. It, and was as high, it, yeah. goes, it goes bam, it actually hits pretty much near zero right before lunch. And then after lunch, it starts sure, up here sure. again and it goes bam. So, it, 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 and, and then they interviewed the, the, the parole officers and they deny that any of this is happening. They, they're not aware of it. They don't think it's, it's happening, but these guys have the data. And there have been other studies in other realms that, that, that support that same idea. They've studied, for instance, doctors who are not supposed to prescribe antibiotics if they think that you know, the cold that you have is bacterial because antibiotics don't help and it's bad for the, for the environment because if people, they, they get resistant, people don't use them right, or it's bad for you. It's just not a good thing, not to mention the cost. So people often come in and they want something, they nag the doctor for antibiotics and the doctors try to resist and often they'll placate their patient. Okay, it could be back, you know, you're not, maybe you're not sure, maybe there's a bacterial, well, just take this, fine. Well, they did the same kind of study of doctors prescribing the antibiotics and they found the same pattern that, that it's a much, uh, they, they resistance, they, they, they prescribe it much less at the beginning and they prescribe it more and more as the day goes on and they're worn down. Of course, yeah. your kids, my kids know that because they just keep nagging you until you're tired of it. And then you finally say yes. But, but it, you're, it's your core affect in your body that's reading, I'm hungry, I'm tired, maybe I'm cold. Right. And that, that, that colors the way you process data. So when this person tells his story to you at five minutes to noon, you process that story more harshly than if you hear it at 9.05 in the morning. FDA, and, right. I, I saw that a similar, same, a similar study with uh, judges in, in uh, bail and uh, uh, ju uh, juries with guilty and non-guilty pleas. Same exact graph you had in the book. They, as you get closer to the noon hour where there's food, where you're going to be replenished, uh, you see it goes, it starts off not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, and then it goes to guilty and then shoots up again. So it's really time of day. And, and look, there's, you know, you don't have to tell you, you, you know that there's physiological issues that are happening here that's coloring uh, your emotions, low, low blood sugar, uh, your stomach's growling, uh, uh, you know, uh, your, 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 um, your ape man is coming over, you feed your body. So yeah. let's speed this up. You know, yeah. it's just a, so, so uh, Lynn, I could talk to you for the next couple hours, man. This is just absolutely amazing. I want to ask you one last question. What did you, what's the takeaway that you want the average guy like myself, who's not a physicist, who didn't have an office down the hall from Richard Feynman or write books with Stephen Hawkins, I'm a regular Joe. What am I supposed to take away from this book and how can I implement that? 
Well, you should. I hope that you would learn that that what we've been saying that your your information processing that is your thinking, your decisions, your behavior, your feeling, your your conscious awareness of, of your feelings, all, all this is not separate. It is produced by both logical thinking and emotions. That they, that they work together. You can't separate them, and that that's a good thing. That that the that the the emotions help you in general, but that they can get out of hand in, in certain situations. In which case, we didn't talk much about this, but I talk in the book about how you manage the emotions, how you become the 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 um, the boss of your emotions, rather than having your emotions drag you around. So they are useful, not just useful. Without emotions, you wouldn't be motivated to even get up or do anything. Again, we didn't talk about that part of it, but but so they're not they're useful, they're vital for your existence, uh, and so you should not fight them. But you, you but there are times when you should manage them and learn how to do that, and always be mindful and aware of, of, of try to be aware of the emotions that you're feeling and how it's affecting your thinking. So that's what I would that's what I would say. Right, you know, it goes back. It's like you know, uh, you you. You know, before we have conversations, really deep conversations in my house with my wife, she knows to serve me dinner. Don't do it on an empty stomach or beforehand. You're going to get a much better response from me on a subject I do not want to talk about after I'm fed rather than before. And it's just picking those spots right. that make all the difference. Yeah, and everything you do, you should be aware of that that aspect of it, you know, of how the emotions, your core affect is affecting you and other other people if you need to to get, you know, to convince them of something. Right. I remember growing up as a kid when I, I, used to do, I was terrible in school. I used to get like 10s and 20s on a out of 100. So I remember to always ask my mother to sign the, the, um, the, um, sign the um, test because they had a sign to show you to show your parents. Always in a good moment, not when she was dealing with the other kids. Uh, when everything was quiet, when she was watching a show on TV and the younger, my younger brothers were sleeping. Oh, Ma, by the way, oh, because if I caught her in the wrong time, it was, I'm going to show your father. That was always the thing. I'm going to show your father. But it, I, I, you, you learn that. You just pick your spots. And look, people who go for their boss for a raise or, or speak to a client, you're going to pick your spots. And those spots that you're picking are not random. You know, you already figured that out. Right. And then those who do best in business, uh, and I think in their personal lives too, uh, the, the people who are leaders and more charismatic, they're, they're, more, they're more aware of, of the Yeah, yeah. They're more, they're more sensitive to them. You know, I think that's it. It's not what I want. It's let me get the right spot for that person instead of me just trying to, you know, sledgehammer to death. Let me pick the right spot because, you know, when I saw, when I saw that years ago with the judges and bail or no bail, it was amazing that, you know, we'd like to think that we're logical creatures, but gosh, uh, you know, an empty stomach really has an impact on, on decision making. Yeah. And that's it. All right, the name of the book, folks, is Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. And I do want to tell you, uh, go on and get the book because it's only about a couple of hundred pages. The stories are amazing. And uh, Leonard, for being a brilliant guy off the charts in IQ, you're right simply. I, I, not only did I understand this, I, I marked it up. I, I saw so many great things and, and uh, all the power to you. That's really an amazing skill you have. Thanks, Charles. Well, you have to tell me that that's 11 books, five bestsellers. You don't need me to tell you that, right? <laughs> Thank you. It's been fun. All right, Leonard, your next book, definitely come on the show. Do you have another book uh, in mind? Uh, not, not yet. I'm still thinking about it. 
And how long does it take you to think about a book? Like when, from the time you, you wrote 11, right? Over how many years? 15 years uh, or 20 years? Over about 20 years. All right. So you're writing one every other year, more or less. Yeah. So when you finish a book, do you say like, okay, let me take a break for about a half hour and let me start thinking of book number? Sometimes I have the idea before I'm done and I just start right away. And sometimes I might think for a few months about it and just see what, what, what comes to me. Uh, you know, I, it's, uh, it's getting harder now because I've written so many books about things I'm really interested in. And I don't want to write about something unless I'm really interested in it. I'm going to be living with it for a year and a half or two years and, and taking a deep dive into it. Uh, so, you know, I look around and I see what's going on. But of course, the good thing is that science is constantly changing, discovering new things a lot. If you compare today to 20 years ago, we know a lot more or a lot. We have a lot of different ideas, too. So there's always new things coming into play that I that attract me and then that's where, where I go. Like with this emotions book, it was really the, the uh, revolutionary work, the fact that it's changing so much that got me into it. I, I talked to a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist and uh, when I was thinking about what book to write and he said, well, that, I'll tell you one thing, don't write about emotion. <laughs> and, and that's why I picked the rest. So why not? He said, oh, it's being revolutionized right now. It's, uh, you know, it's such a crazy Perfect. feeling. Yeah. Perfect. That's Perfect. what I want. But, you know, I got the sense when you're writing this book, you're having a lot of fun because some of these examples are like, they, you say, holy, I'm sure a lot of these examples and studies that you like to said, you know, the one with the stents, that was amazing. You know, that uh, most stents, where is that? Um, stents work for those who have heart conditions, where it's narrowing of the arteries. Stents work no better than, than uh, stent placebos. Yeah, that they do the operation and then don't put the stent in. It works just as well. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. Don't tell the insurance, the health insurance company. I'm sure they already know that, right? That's another, another thing. Another thing they won't cover. <laughs> JAMA or one of the major, yeah. I mean, this is this is well known now, but they still do it, though. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Letterman, all continued success. Thanks for being on the show, and I really enjoyed it. Next book, uh, you definitely got to let me know because I love to have all you right. again. All right. All right. Thanks so much, man. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.